Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with your host, Ken Castroco. Please hit that follow button so that you will not miss another podcast episode. Every episode, we interview an ordinary but extraordinary person on their identity journey. An identity journey is your unique journey that you have taken in your life to get to where you are now. That journey is not only fascinating, but inspiring and encouraging to others because others can relate to your struggles and victories, which can give them hope and help them get unstuck. Ultimately, my goal is to empower people to not only understand, but truly embrace their true selves, unlocking their full potential and living a more authentic and fulfilling life. Knowing who you are can change the way you see the world and others around you. When you know who you are, you're powerful. Today, my guest is Alan Barikovich. I met Alan when I was running with my friend Cheryl Lloyd on the TRT. We saw Alan and his wife, Caroline, at Tunnel Creek. They were such a friendly couple. There are people you meet you really never get to hang out with, but when you see them a couple of times a year, they make an impression on you. That was Alan and Caroline. When I was the race director of the Kokanee Trail Runs in South Lake Tahoe, they helped me mark the course and have ran the race multiple times. I have seen them over the years at races, racing or pacing someone. In those short interactions, I knew we would have been close friends if we were neighbors. Alan was born June 1st, 1967 in San Francisco, California, the youngest of three children. Siblings Mark and Elena, parents Bruce and Rita, both high school science teachers, born and raised in San Francisco, California. Alan grew up in Daly City, California with teachers for parents. Alan developed a love for the outdoors, camping every summer and spring break. Backpacked and camped through the Sierras with the Boy Scouts and earned his Eagle Scout badge in 1982. Alan received his undergraduate degree from Washington State University and then departed on a four-year journey working as a whitewater kayaking and rafting guide across the United States and Central America. He subsequently received his Master's of Science degree in Physical Therapy from the University of Pacific in 1999. He worked for Barton Health in South Lake Tahoe for 24 years, serving as the Director of Rehabilitation and Performance for 13 years. Currently in the process of relocating to Santa Rosa, California to start as the Rehabilitation Manager for Sutter Santa Rosa Regional Hospital. Alan and his wife, Caroline, who is also a physical therapist and a healthcare compliance officer, enjoy trail running with a passion for ultra marathons. Alan has two sons, Ethan, who is a sophomore at San Diego State University, and Nolan, a sophomore at Central Newman High School. Please help me welcome Alan Borikovich. Thank you for being on the Who Do You Think You Are podcast today. I have Alan Borikovich. Is that right? That was perfect. <laughs> we have to have that here on the on the podcast because I want to honor you and your name and make sure I got that right. So thank you, Alan, for being on today. And we're just going to have some fun here. Uh, I was trying to remember when I met you the first time, and it was with Cheryl Lloyd up on the TRT. I met you and your wife. And I, I just never forget that day. And I don't, I don't, it was, we were at the, we were at Tunnel Creek. And you and your wife had been running. I don't know where you're running from or where you're running to, but Cheryl and I were running, and she was actually training for, for the 100 mile that year. And then the next time I saw you, I believe we was at the Kokanee. 
we were volunteering. Yes, that's we were, right. We were volunteering, and that that volunteering has its own story, which is kind of funny. But first, let me go. Let me digress real quick, Ken, and just say thank you for asking me how to pronounce my name, because I've gone through my entire life with people butchering it, and I mean my whole family, obviously, but. It's, it's always something that, you know, when you get a phone call from a number you don't know and someone would say, hi, can I speak to Alan? And they don't know how to say your last name. I always thought, OK, this is someone I probably don't need to speak to right now. So <laughs> I use that as a gauge to, to know who the people who are going to be in my world or not. So so I always appreciate when someone asks me how to say it. So thank you for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> the last three days, I've been thinking, how what am I going to do? I'm just going to ask him. I'm just going to ask him. <laughs> so, well, hey, you know, basically what we're going to do is, man, we're going to go to the back to the beginning. And I believe that every story is incredibly interesting. And I have, I, the, when I saw you on your 100-mile attempt, and we'll get into the running and stuff, and I can't wait to, to learn how that all came to be. But, you know, you know, when I saw you at the 100-mile, I mean, and you were up there at Tunnel Creek again, and and of course, when I saw you the first time, you were doing great. And that was, it was really neat to see you. And so having you on this podcast is, is really an, just a blessing. So let's start at the beginning, you know, and I always say, let's start at the very beginning, maybe around five or so. Let, how, where did you grow up and, and how did you become who you are today? So we're, we're, we're back then at five years old. Wow. So I was, I was born in San Francisco, California, the youngest of three. I grew up in Daly City, uh, in the house that my parents still live in, in Daly City. And, you know, it's, it's funny thinking about doing this with you and, and trying to remember the, the course of my younger years of my life and how crazy different the world is today. Growing up in the North Peninsula of the San Francisco area, Bay Area, we ran around with fields, open fields and and played hide and seek all through areas it was safe and there's track housing going up and and now when i go back to visit my parents at their house it's it's the concrete and asphalt jungle you know there is no open field there is <laughs> it is is not that and and so it's just amazing how the changes just the the whole area going back to visit where i spent my childhood walking to school every day you know that was something we did we you know we walked to school and until high school, where it was a little bit further and, and getting a ride. I was fortunate enough, both my brothers, or my brother, sister, and I all went to the same high school that my father taught at. So we always had a ride to school, but we always had to be up really early to, to make sure we didn't miss our ride to school with our dad. Otherwise, <laughs> we were in bad shape. So yeah, we were we were fortunate to, to have that. You know, growing up, and once again, I was the youngest of three. Both my parents were teachers. Which, which was really both science teachers, actually, also. Oh, wow. So my mom is a biochemist, I believe. I know she was a chemist, and, and my father was a physical science teacher. And they, it was just great to have them with that because that really led to a lot of our upbringing, just going camping and learning about nature and the environment and, and, and science in general, which... You know, I think when you look at what, when people ask, what should I study? What should I think about going to school for? Science and math. Just go there. <laughs> you're going to find a job. If you, can, if you study science and math, you're going to use it. So, yeah. So I, I just felt really fortunate to have teachers for parents. And, and that also led to just a great 
upbringing because we had every summer off and, right. and we camped. We, I can't think about my childhood without thinking about all we ever did was go camping. Really? That, I mean, it really spurned on a lot of the interest in the outdoors and just being able to explore and, and see what was out there, especially all in California. I mean, once again, born and raised in California, I have ventured out. We'll get into that across the country and different countries. And, but I always said, I'm going to go back to California because I do love California <laughs> outside of politics and other things that go on in taxes. But I <laughs> do love California. Yeah. It is really what I consider my home and who I am. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, my wife and I, we, we venture down to, you know, the Southern coast of California and we have friends that, you know, that have houses there that live in other states. And we, we wonder everything. Why are you coming back to California? Oh, we just love California. We love the weather. You know, it's crazy. What was one of your favorite places to go as a kid and camping? Well, that's interesting because so my father had at some point, I think he had borrowed money from my grandfather. At least that's the how I remember the story a little bit. And he purchased five acres of land up in the mountains above Orville above the Lake Orville Reservoir. Really? And, and, and so that five acres became pretty much my brother, sister, and I's childhood place. We, we would go camping there. They built like a flattened out area that we could, we could camp. And there was a place for setting up a tent or sleeping bags. And they had built a kitchen area. I mean, and then the outhouse, which was a whole nother story, but it was our private campground. And we had a creek running through the property. And I'll never forget, because you would drive up the Orville-Quincy Highway, and and it was a windy road. And I, all I can remember is I got car sick every time we did this trip. And you turn off of this road and go down this dirt road for a couple miles, like you're just going into the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, there was a little clearing, and we drive up this hill. And here was our campsite in the middle of the mountains. And that... That was just the greatest thing as a kid because my brother, sister, and I, we would just explore. we just take off and, and go hiking and just pick blackberries yep. and really learned, you know, how to camp there. And then my, my parents, though, always would, we camped in every state park, I think, in California. I can't think of one that I have not camped at. And then getting to see the national parks. I mean, just just great way to grow up as a kid to get out of the city. Yeah. So that, that was really just a great. All, when I think of my memories, of looking back, how fortunate I was to get to do that. You know, it's really funny. I grew up in Orville, California. Oh, that's. <laughs> See the circle, man. It just comes <laughs> back around. It does come back around. I'd be very interested to know where your my, father's my, property was. Yeah, my parents bought it. Yeah, this property. Yeah, we spent yeah. every every living moment as a kid on the lake. Yeah, Lake Orville. Yep, we were yep. always on the way home. The tradition was, we'd we'd stop at either Orville, or then there was another place I think outside of Yuba City called Thermalito yep. Park, where there was a reservoir. Yep. And we yeah, and it's always so hot in the summer there, so we'd stop and we'd go swimming, and then we'd go to the Ice Cream Palace in Marysville. Yeah. And that was, <laughs> yeah, that was like the tradition. We would do that: go camping, then go swimming, and yeah. That's incredible. Really, those times that you have with your family and everything, when you go back to those times, does that, does, I'm, I'm sure that still today gives you, I don't know, just those good feelings. And it's just, it's an amazing thing. You know, ours was boating. That's what was our, that was our feel good. When I look back now is boating. 
Yeah. Yeah. We, ours was really going camping and hiking. That was really the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was so fortunate that, I mean, when I was four years old, I got to hike in the Grand Canyon. When I was four years old, I climbed Mount Lassen. And, and that was just my parents' MO. We would go camping somewhere to a national park or state park, and we would go hike. And, and we would go exploring. And, and that was just such a great way to see things. Yeah. And, and, and that just really translated over into my adult life. Wow. Great to see places on your feet. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. What, what about places around the Bay Area there? Was there any hot spots or places you really liked around there? In the Bay Area, you know, I, boy, I'm trying to think back of this now. You know, I love San Francisco. And I think as I, you know, I, when I became a teenager, my friends, we'd go hang out in downtown San Francisco. And I go to, I'm a, I love music. I'm a, I'm a classic rock freak. Great <laughs> game, classic rock, but I, classic rock is pretty much my, my musical playlist. Nice. All classic rock. But my friends at the time, we would go down to Broadway and go to the Stone and go to some of these clubs and, and places and go see bands and go to concerts. And that's, nice. you know, what I think about and just going into San Francisco and, and exploring San Francisco. Nice. It's, just, nice. it's a great city. So, so you did all your schooling up through grade school, high school, all through being down there in San Francisco. Yeah, South San Francisco, which was actually where the South San Francisco Unified School District, where my father taught. And my mother taught down the peninsula. She always taught more in the private school sector. So mm-hmm. she taught, ended up finishing her career at Sarah High School in San Mateo. So, but yeah, we, my brother, sister, and I all went through the public school system nice. in, in South San Francisco. Well, hey, so yeah, so you've stuck through the entire. There's not very many people that can say now these days I, that I talk to that can say they started. They were born in a city and actually went through an entire schooling in that city. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, until college. It was, that was our lives. Yep. So in, in high school, was there any sports that you played and any, anything that you were sports or any other interests? Yeah, so my sport became, my brother, sister, and I all, all did athletics. It was really encouraged by our parents, which was nice, who were not athletes at all, but we were fortunate to really have a lot of support that way and i my sport that i migrated towards was wrestling okay. i i grew up playing baseball basketball all you know tried soccer all the different sports i really loved baseball but i ended up not growing i actually was pr- a pretty small kid all through high school and and even college and and just was a late bloomer and and being a smaller kid Wrestling just seemed to be a good fit for me. I made some friends. One who's one of my dearest friends still today was actually my coach. And it ended up being a really great sport for me as I tended to migrate more towards the individual sport side of mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So, Did you ever consider going into wrestling into college or anything? I was fortunate. I got to wrestle one year at Washington State University. Title IX was, <laughs> was the end of that, but... I'm, I'm a big Title IX fan, so it's not when I say Title IX ended my career, it's okay, because wrestling in college was not like wrestling in high school or in junior high school. Right. It was, it was a different deal. And my sister actually was a collegiate volleyball player, and she was a pretty high-level athlete all through high school, and, and then in college got to play volleyball in college at Washington State also, which was part of my, really a big part of my decision to want to go there and, and be where my sister was at. Gotcha. And uh, so Washington State is where? 
It's Pullman, Washington. Pullman. That's on the east side of, of the east state. Side about 80, 90 miles south of Spokane. Now, why did you choose Washington State? Well, like, like I said, one thing was my sister was there, and she was my idol growing up. <laughs> so I, I really wanted to, to be there. I did get a chance to wrestle there. So it was, it was just to get away, to go somewhere different. Uh -huh. The schools I applied to, I got accepted. So, so that was a good thing. I got a partial scholarship, the Lighty Alumni Leadership Foundation Scholarship. So that was a big influence too, to get, yeah. to get a little cash get there. So. Yeah, you mentioned your sister. And, and so uh, what is her name? Elena. Elena. And you said she was your hero. Why is that? She was, you know, she, besides being just a great athlete, I think outside of my wife and my parents and my brother, she's the person who got me the most. I think she just got me, especially during a time. So she was, she was tall. I mean, she was a collegiate volleyball player. Right, so. right was always the tall one and being a late bloomer i mean when i say late bloomer when i graduated high school i was five two and weighed like a hundred pounds oh my gosh I mean, and and i think i was four ten when i was a freshman so and so i was i just i did not grow and i think she always was my kind of my protector like having dealt with some being small like that i i dealt with some bullying issues mm -hmm. and and things like that. And she was definitely a, a guardian for me. Yeah. Now, how much older was she? Two years. Two years older than you. So how was that after she left high school? Oh, that was that was sad. I mean, for me, that she was gone. But whenever she would travel with the volleyball team, and the good thing about being in the Pac-10 is a lot of the schools were in California. Yeah, yeah. So, so we did get to go see her play. And uh, so that was really good. And I actually did... When I was 18, I, my parents thankfully let me take a car and drive to Pullman. Oh, wow. And, and visit her. So that was really cool. So, so I did drive up and I got to see the school. And, and that's kind of when I really was like, yeah, I think I want to go to Washington State also. That's really cool. So tell us a little bit about your education. What did you go in for? What, did, what was your passion then at that time? At that time, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Right. <laughs> Really, the and so I went in with undeclared major. I, I think I changed my major two or three times. I went from let me see, landscape architecture to business, and then I ultimately I ended up going into or getting a degree. It was under the recreation and leisure studies, but it was more commercial recreation with a business administration. I was thinking I would want to maybe do club and spa management or, or kind of get into that realm, or maybe someone with hotel management, but still really wasn't quite sure. But while I was at Washington State, the, the thing that really, I think, changed the course of my life, right, which it really did change the course of my life, was I got a job on campus at the uh, outdoor program, with the outdoor program there. And even though I was working mostly in a rental shop, they did put on trips and, and led adventures and, and things like that. And they had just hired the new assistant manager who got me whitewater kayaking. And, oh. and that, was, that was really what, I think, changed my life. Because he used to take me kayaking out on the Salmon River, the Locksaw, and I learned to paddle. And that really became my passion for 20-something years was a whitewater kayaker. And that really got me around the country, different parts. I went to Central America for a while, worked down there. And I went, when I graduated from school, I went to work for a place called the Nantahala Outdoor Center in North Carolina. 
Oh, wow. And so when I graduated, I told my parents, I'm packing my car, my $800 Dodge Colt that I owned <laughs> and, bought, and, and drove it across the country and ended up in North Carolina and was really, it was funny because I got really lucky when I was there because there was a problem with the dam on the, what was it, the Nantahala River where they usually started out some of their raft guides and, and newer instructors. So I got to go work and actually lived out on the Chattooga River for a couple seasons, for a couple years. I did it pretty much year round and I became a river rat. And, and if you're not familiar with the Chituga River, that's where they filmed the movie Deliverance. Oh, okay. So that's the, so, so Mountain Rest, South Carolina is where I called home for, for a few years. Right. And then, and then that led me to going up into West Virginia. I lived in West Virginia for a while and, and was working on rivers up there, went to Costa Rica and I was down there for a little less than a year and, and lived down there and, and, and actually became a bird watching guide and a raft guide. Oh my gosh. So that was, that was a, a great experience going down there. That was kind of another one of those. I, I walked into my dad's office and said, Hey dad, can I get a ride to the airport? I'm, I'm going to go live in Costa Rica. I bought a one year open ticket and I'm going to go work. I have a job lined up with these guys who I met in West Virginia. And, you know, once again, my parents being supportive, he said, okay. You know, my mom said, write a letter every now and then. So we know you're alive and everything's going well. <laughs> so I went down to, I went down to Costa Rica and, and, and did that for a while until it was just, you know, time to come back and went back into the river rat gig as a kayak and whitewater rafting instructor and guide. Wow. So I got to know this bird watching, I've never heard of a guide of bird. I mean, I'm, Obviously, people, this is a huge thing all around the world. Explain that a little bit. How'd you get into that? So, so these guys who, it was one of my landlords where I lived in West Virginia, they had started their own company down there on the Cora BC River, which was not, which was a pretty mellow river, but they needed guides, people who knew whitewater, who could, who could safely take bird watchers down the river, just any tourist. But this area was really known. Costa Rica, obviously, one of the, the number one bird watching places in the really? world. Really? The amount of species of birds, right? I mean, the bird, the Costa Rica bird watching guide is kind of like one of the Bibles of bird watching. And I, I'll be the first to admit, I didn't know a darn thing about bird watching. <laughs> I could identify a few birds, but so I got down there and and studied the the bird watching book and just had to just became familiar with the birds in that area. And it was a tropical, dry jungle environment. It had had several species of birds, some some very unique that to see them, it was quite exotic. And so I just kind of learned the birds. I, I faked my way through some bird calls because I figured I'd get better tips that way and <laughs> and 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 did that. And it was really a cool thing because, you know, just the the, the habitat and the wildlife and, and just getting to recognize birds and, and, and do that was was really a cool, once again, piece of, of experience in my life that I'll never forget. That, that's incredible. Yeah, I, I've never heard of a guide, but you would think, man, being on those rivers, you would see just about every kind of waterfowl yeah. to whatever. It'd be incredible. Yeah, incredible wildlife. Really incredible wildlife down there. So you have any interesting stories about people coming down there and hiring you as a guide? Yeah, I'm trying, you know, it's when I, when I flash back to that, it's, it's so funny because I had, at the time, you know, I had hair down to here uh, and and bought this big, I guess you'd call it kind of like a farming sombrero kind of hat. It wasn't like a sombrero, but it was just this right. big white hat for the sun. And 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 I would uh, row people down the river and I would take them into these side 
areas where I knew like howler monkeys were, were in the trees and stuff. And, and I'd pull out this big machete, this big knife, and I would chop up chop up pineapples and do this whole display thing. And, and it, it, you know, it was just kind of funny. And then every now and then we'd see crocodiles or, or alligators. I think it was more alligators, excuse me, at that time in Costa Rica. And 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 because people would ask me, can can I can I go swimming here? And I'd be like, well, you see those two eyes coming out of the water? That's not a good idea. Because <laughs> one of the one of the trips I would do is I would row people down to the Nicoya Peninsula or to the the Gulf of Nicoya, where they could catch a ferry uh-huh. over to the to the Nicoya Peninsula. And that was you get out of more of the fast moving water and into a big open area. And 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 that's where you'd see more of the, the the alligators and what have you. But one time I was taking this guy, he was a European guy who was just in Central America. He was just bumming around. And we were he had to get to the ferry. And I got out into the into the Gulf in Akoya, and the wind was so bad. It was so strong. It was sweeping us out away from the shoreline. And I had to get row about a mile or two to get to where the ferry would pick people up. And I didn't think we were going to make it. And I, I could see there was a little panic on his face, too. And I was rowing for everything I was worth. And we finally made it into it. But it was a little because the tide was going out. The wind was blowing the wrong direction. And it was it was one of those moments. I had, oh, geez, don't just don't give up. Keep, keep <laughs> rowing. Down, keep rowing. And, and we made it. So sounds like sir, that's maybe somewhere some of where your endurance came in. Endurance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think just the, yeah, keep going. Don't yeah, just keep going. That's right. That's right. So after that stint down there, you came back. Now, did you continue doing your guiding and everything in the states? Yeah, I came back, and I, I think I did another season or two in West Virginia. I pretty much migrated up there and Great Whitewater in the state of West Virginia. And then I finally, I think I had an epiphany one morning. I woke up and said, I can't do this anymore. I have to get my life together and start doing something with my life. So I, I packed the Dodge Colt back up, still driving that car. And my kayaks were longer than the car, I think, back in those days. You know, everything's shorter now. But, and, and I drove back across the country and knocked on my parents' door and said, hey, I'm back and I'm going to go back to school. So I, I enrolled at Cal State Hayward at the time, now called Cal State East Bay, and I enrolled in a pre-med, pre-physical therapy curriculum. Now, how did you come to that decision to go into that field? You know, yeah, just being, you know, I'd always been interested in, in the human body, you know, coming up, being fairly athletic, going through that with my, my siblings being athletic and just getting to see you know, the training room at Washington State when I was there and, and what that looked like. And and just, it just resonated with me that physical therapy would be something that I might enjoy at the time. And I don't think it hurt. I think U.S. News and World Report had just put out their top 100 jobs. And, and I think physical therapy was in the top three. So I thought, hey, this is good. I can actually get employed and and and, and do something that I think I'm really going to enjoy. And, that, right. and that's really the, the heart of it right there. I just thought, you know, I think physical therapy is going to be a good thing. Yeah. And so it's, how long does it take to go to school? I mean, what's, what's the schooling like for something like physical therapy? Well, I had to go the longer routes because I had my prior, my previous degree. And then I didn't have some of the science courses that I needed for, for the prerequisites. So, so I did about a year and a half, almost two years at Cal State Hayward. 
And then I started the process of applying to PT school and PT school at the time when I applied. So it's a master's. So I have a master of science in physical therapy. Now it's a clinical doctorate. It's a doctor of physical therapy, which is more of a three-year program. Mm -hmm. But back in the day, they didn't, the, the doctorate programs hadn't started yet. So, so it was another two years of, of PT school. Gotcha. And so you're, you've gone through obviously college and have, was there anything that you could remember back and going through PT school that, that was, was monumental or changed you in any kind of way? I have to go backwards. Now I got to go back even further because when I came back and I was going to school full time and I was working full time, I actually got a job at REI uh -huh. co-op because it seemed like a natural for me. Okay. I'm going to go work somewhere. I can talk about stuff. I can talk about boating. I right. can talk about thing. And it's so funny because these are those moments in life where you just, you can't make it up. I was working in the rental shop at REI in San Carlos and, and this, this gal had come up to rent something and I'll never forget because she's signing her paperwork. And I said, wow, that's a great signature. And out of nowhere, she says, well, I'm a physical therapist. And I said, really, I'm trying to get a job in a clinic because I need hours to get into PT school. I pretty much almost concluded all my prerequisites to, to apply for PT school. And she said, well, I'm not hiring, but here's a name of a guy who might be hiring. And, and I was like, great. So she gives me the guy's name and I called him and he said, oh, okay, great. Yeah. And I, I dropped the name of this gal who had, who had referred me to him. And he said, well, I don't have anything right now, but I think we're going to have a position in a few months. But just check, just keep checking back in with me. I think I called every day. Hey, how's that position looking? I, I just, persistence, I was like, I'm not going to blow this. I need to, and I finally wore him down. He said, okay, come on, come on down to the clinic. Well, the clinic at the time happened to be the Stanford, it was Stanford outpatient clinic. Oh, wow. So, so that, that, that was great. So I drove down, I met him, he gave me a job. And, and, and that was fan. That was great. So I worked my way up to just being a newbie, a rehab aide, to kind of being the lead aide after several years, which the important part of this story is, is where I met my wife because she had just graduated from Notre Dame, the Notre Dame in, in South Bend, Indiana, and had just needed some, she had taken a couple classes because she was Pre, I can't remember. She was pre-med. She was a psychology major and she was kind of humming and hawing about what she was going to do. And physical therapy was something she was interested in. So she ended up coming into that clinic as a volunteer at the time. And so it's so funny. That's how we met. And, oh, wow. and we ended up getting a job there. And that really was the beginning of now what I would consider, even though we've been married for just 23 years, a 28, 29-year-old partnership because we ended up working together at Stanford. We ended up applying to physical therapy school all at the same time and got into the same physical therapy school. So that led to, we moved in together. We were dating and we ended up moving in together. And, and it, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I definitely scored. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not knowing what a stud my wife was at the right. time. I knew she was because she had played, she was a, a softball player at Notre Dame. Oh, wow. Okay. So she's by far the better athlete of the two of us. She's always been the, the better athlete. And, and she's the one who, who I can blame for pretty much my ultra running career I can blame for 
for a lot of things because she's the one who really who really got me into into running because I didn't I never enjoyed running. It was because I ran to lose weight for wrestling and I just never enjoyed it. I mean, I ran a little here and there. I ran one year of cross country in high school to get in shape for wrestling. But she's the one who really she loved running. And when we were dating, she would say, hey, you want to go? I have this three mile loop. Let, let's go do that. And I'd, oh, OK, I, yeah, I can do three miles. And then, you know, the next day she'd go, hey, let's go do five miles today. What happened to the three mile loop? <laughs> Why do we need to go do five miles? That's like, OK, I figured, you know, I better try to, you know, impress her to say I can. Yes, I can keep up with her and run with her. But, but it really it's. Yeah. So that's 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 how that came about. That that's incredible. Yeah. So so you you guys got married and you know tell us about that story. I mean, you're coming. Did you how much time did you spend down in the Bay Area together before you? So we we, we were yeah. So we worked there. We got into PT school at UOP in beautiful Stockton. So we we lived in Stockton oh, for a wow. couple of years. Our apartment in Stockton, and then when we went out on clinical affiliations we decided to pick three places that we thought we might consider wanting to live. And one of them, we went up to Washington state. We went there more in the Seattle area. I did an affiliation at Tacoma general hospital and she was with a private outpatient clinic. And then we were in Tahoe. We got, we got clinical affiliations in Tahoe and that definitely led into a lot of more of the direction of our lives. Cause when we left Tahoe, we were in the Bay area then doing clinical affiliations. And I got a call with a job offer at the clinic I had been in in Tahoe. And that's how I ended up there. So we ended up going, I, I got a job with this private outpatient ortho clinic. And then, and Caroline ended up about a month later getting on with the hospital in South Lake Tahoe. A year later, I joined her. I found out that the private sector wasn't the way to go if I wanted to actually move, go somewhere with, with my career as a physical therapist. So I went over to the hospital, and, and so once again, that was 20, 24 years ago, worked there. Wow. So that was, and, and during that time, I mean, that's really when, I mean, when we talk about getting into the, the running side of life, that's really where it all began, was besides my wife getting me to go for runs with her when we were dating, was, was really living in Tahoe and then getting exposed to trail running and then also running in snow. That was the biggie. And that was, I mean, here's a story that was really probably how I even became an ultra runner was she, she comes home one day and she says, Hey, my clinical instructor says we should do the great ski race, which is the Tahoe city to Truckee. Right. And, and we had never cross country skied a day in our lives. And we, I said, okay, so we rented some gear, we rented some cross country gear. And I think out of the thousand people who did it, we were number 999 and number 1000 because <laughs> we just were, we were just kind of poking along. I tried not to impale myself on, on the poles a couple times, <laughs> but, but while we were doing this, I heard this noise come up behind us and this guy goes flying by us on running snowshoes. And I'll never forget. I looked at Carolina and I said, that's it. We, we need to get some running snowshoes because this skiing stuff is, forget it. This is terrible. So we finally, we made it through the finish without killing ourselves. We somehow made it to the finish. And right away, the first thing I did was I started researching running snowshoes. Because next year, I was going to come back and run that darn thing on snowshoes. That, that was my goal. So went out, bought us some running snowshoes, and started snowshoe running. 
And the first thing you find out about snowshoe running is it's a lot more effort. <laughs> <laughs> even, even good running snowshoes, which are so lightweight and it's just like running in, you know, I usually would just wear road shoes, road running shoes, but it's, it definitely burns a lot more energy. So I trained and trained and I would run on the snowmobile trails that we could find and, and signed up again the next year for the great ski race in the snowshoe division. We were both going to do that. And I was, I was thinking, okay, this is, this is going to be fun now. This is, this is going to be cool. And we're running that race and anyone who's familiar with it knows that the first 11 K is uphill, like literally straight uphill. And I definitely like a lot of runs that I've done started too fast. And then I was, I was cruising along pretty good though. And then I get passed by this other guy. I knew there were some people ahead of me, but I get passed by this other guy on snowshoes and thought, okay, I just got to keep this guy in my sights. I'm going to try to follow him and keep him in my sights. So until like the last, I don't know, kilometer or two, I was actually able to kind of keep up with this guy. And then I finished the race. And I mean, I literally just about collapsed and was cramping up my hamstrings, cramping, and I couldn't stand up. And I was finally get myself together and, and this guy come, comes up to me and I, I can't remember if he was from like a local newspaper or something. And he, he says, Hey, who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm Alan. I'm kind of nobody. He goes, he goes, do you know who that was? Who you just came in behind? And, and I said, no. And he goes, that's a guy named Tim Tweetmeyer. Oh my gosh. And, and I'm like, who's Tim Tweetmeyer? And he goes, well, do you know what ultras are? I said, no, what are ultra What You know, it's like, he's the ultra marathons. I said, well, I don't know what, I mean, obviously it's running far. And he goes, yeah, he goes, you should, you should think about doing ultra marathons. And, and that is once again, straight story. And, and so he goes, have you ever heard of the Western States 100? And I'm like, yeah, I think I've heard about it, but I don't know that I really want to do that, but who knows? And, now that's kind of a foregone conclusion. Right. Right. Seven Western states now. So how many? Seven. Seven. Nice. Seven hundred miles. Yeah. And that's incredible. Yeah. That's an incredible story. So what was the first race after you did the snowshoe that you did in an ultra? So I ran the so to qualify back in twenty some odd years ago, the qualifying standards were a lot different than they are today. Right, right. They, they did it based on your age and you had to run a certain 50 mile time to qualify for, for Western States. And I think my time, I was in my thirties at the time was under, I think it was first, it was under 10 hours. I had to do a 10 hour, 50 miler. And so when I knew I was going to try to, to do Western States, I found the last race on the, on the calendar, which was that what was then called the Helen Klein 50 miler and kind of not, knowing what I was getting into, I trained for that as best I could. I used to just run from our house and run over Luther Pass towards Pickett Junction, which is kind of like going towards Kirkwood, if you're familiar with that area yeah. of South Lake Tahoe. And I used to run there and back, and, and that's how I trained. And I went out and I did the Helen Klein 50-miler and couldn't walk for three weeks after it. But I got my qualifying time in for Western States. So, and, and still my best 50-mile time ever because one, I didn't know what I was doing, and it was flat. You just went out and ran. That, that, that's it. It was really just a matter of I didn't know training. I ran, but long-distance running was something that I was not really accustomed to. And, and it was just a matter of running, you know, yeah, just taking, you know, learning about 
running shoes. You know, I, yeah. I didn't know my running shoes 20, 30 years ago. I just kind of, oh, what do you got on your feet? Go run. So, yeah, so that was, you know, and the thing about that one is, you know, I got in. It's so funny. I got into Western States that year. And it's, it's one of my three DNFs that I have in my ultra career. And it was my first Western States. And, and I had no idea what 100 mile mountain ultra running was about with my limited experience of running, you know, the Helen Klein 50 mile. Right. And it was a kind of an odd thing why I ended up dropping. I had this really bad pain. And I mean, in, in my testicle, it was like actually pain, like bad pain. Like I was concerned pain and got checked out by a doctor at Robinson flat. And he's like, yeah, you might consider ending your day here, which was really upsetting to me at the time, just the emotion you go through to get there. And, you know, even that first 30 miles, anyone who's done Western States is I consider that's the most special part of Western States is the first 30 miles. And so I dropped and it was really hard to drop because I didn't want to quit something I had started, but I just, every time I took a step, the pain was so bad. So I ended up dropping and that probably was one of the most important moments in my ultra running career because it, it lit a fire that I never would have said I've ran over 90 ultra marathons had it not for them been that moment wow. when I dropped that day and, or I've done now seven Western States and, you know, 2,100 milers. That Interesting. So, so yeah, that drove so that drove you, that DNF drove, drove you to not DNF again. Yeah. Except for the next time it happened, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so that's, yeah, exactly. It really made it so that don't quit. You know, it was something my mom had said to me back when I was in high school, I joined the swim team one year. And I think after the first day of practice, I came home and I said, oh my God, I am not a swimmer. I was so tired and so sore. And I never, and my mom, who, who was probably one of the mellowest, chillest people you would ever meet, said, you started it, you signed up, you're not quitting. You, you can't quit. And, and that's something that I know has always resonated with me throughout my life is to, if you stand at the starting line, you better owe it and respect the people who didn't get here by finishing. And that's something that I, I definitely take very seriously is like, if I take a spot, I better, I, I shouldn't stand here unless I have every intention of finishing this. And that's, that's, you know, other than circumstances out of our control, which my next DNF was something that I actually, I got attacked by hornets at the Cascade Crest 100 oh my gosh. and almost died. So that was a, I ended up getting carried out. I, I didn't know I had a bee sting allergy at the time and found out I did. And it was serious. So and, you went into uh, anaphylactic shock. Yeah. I went into circulatory collapse. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. And wow. I was fortunate enough that, that my brother, who was a fairly accomplished Ironman athlete and, and an ultra runner himself, he was going to meet me at, at the Tacoma pass aid station. And when these other runners found me unconscious in the middle of the trail who helped me. And I mean, once again, it's, the, the ultra running community is so amazing. These guys stopped to help me. I mean, and brought raised my feet, treated me for shock, got blood back to, my, back to my brain, and told runners who were going by at the time, hey, go tell them at the aid station this guy needs help. 
And when I came conscious, I was, I, I got up and I was sitting on the side of the trail and I told them, I said, God, thank you so much for helping me. And I mean, I'd been unconscious, so I didn't really know what had gone on too much, but I said, I think I'm going to be okay. If you tell, if you get to the aid station, my brother, Mark will be there, tell him and he will come get me. And that's exactly wow. what happened. I waited and then I started walking a little bit and then here comes our brother running uphill for three miles. He literally, I mean, ultimately things went from bad to really bad then because actually after I started walking a little bit, I started, I collapsed and started having seizures and literally would have aspirated on my own vomit and probably died and drowned. But my brother saved my life. Wow. There's, there's no question. He came, he and then an EMT had come up the trail and to fast forward, I think six people ended up carrying me out to the aid station and, and, uh, wow. but I live, I live to tell about it. Man, and you're here. <laughs> and I went back and, and that spurned on another because then the next year I went back and had probably one of my best hundred mile runs of all the ones I've done in, in 20, 2008. Uh, I went back to Cascade Crest and just had a really incredible, amazing journey there and, and had a great run. So, but I was, every time I heard bees buzzing, boy, I sprinted <laughs> really fast. Did you have an EpiPen now when you ran? Oh, oh yeah. I carry two or three actually. It's funny. That's, that's exactly. Yep. I carry, carry Epis with me. I've actually had to stick myself twice. I was out on a training run before, before a race back on the Tahoe Rim Trail. Uh, it had been nine years almost to the day. And I was doing these, building up to a, a run called Run Rabbit Run mm -hmm. in Colorado. So I was trying to get a lot of time on the rim trail up high. And I felt it on the back of my leg. And I just thought, oh, no, here it is again. And it had been literally nine years. And so I pulled out the EpiPen. I took some Benadryl, went to this creek and filled my water bottles. But I didn't know what to do at the time. I thought, should I stick myself now? Should I wait? Because it took about 20 minutes the first time before I started going unconscious. So I, I kept going and boy, within 15, 20 minutes, I couldn't walk a straight line. I, I couldn't read my phone. I was trying to call my wife, Caroline, just say, hey, why don't you drive up to Echo Summit and start running in on the trail? And, and I couldn't see. And that's when I knew things were bad. So I somehow found a boulder, stuck, stuck the EpiPen in my leg. And it's amazing how, how great those things work when they kick in because about 30 seconds later, I was like, Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> this is good. Except for I, I, I stood up and I started trying to run again and that wasn't happening. Oh my gosh. I was out of breath so fast. So I walked for about two hours, two and a half hours back to the trailhead to, to get to my car Wow. and drove home Wow. <laughs> and drove home. Yeah. Back so. in the days, man. You just, well, yeah. <laughs> You're out there. You got to get back. It is it's the way it is. <laughs> so, you've done how many how many ultras have you done now? Ninety something. Ninety something. That's For incredible. The... Yeah. So, how's Caroline fit in all this? I mean, she's she's obviously ran her share too. Yeah, she's she's quite an accomplished. I mean, she was when she, you know, I give her so much credit because. You know, once she really is the one who got me into running for joy, not just work and effort. Right. You know, she did her time to give birth to our children. So she, you know, went through that four or five year period of her life where, you know, she was a mom being a mom that way. And then she started diving into the 50K distances 
and really became, in my opinion, I think it shows in the record books, he became one of the better or top female runners, I'd say, in, in the Tahoe area for a while there in South Lake. And, and I mean, I couldn't keep up with her at all. But she took off and, and started going and really getting into it. She had just some great performances, yeah. some great runs. And that's, that's one of our jokes is always as the kids were little growing up, that's how we went on dates. We would hire babysitters and we'd go for four or five hour runs. Wow. The weekends, that, that's where we spent. I mean, it's, I'm so lucky because I, you know, you talked to ultra runners and I mean, I've listened to your, your podcast almost every episode. And, you know, w- when someone's partner isn't an ultra runner, it's a tough to explain to people how that works. And I'm just so lucky that my wife is, a passionate runner and loves ultra running and is, I mean, she's, she's paced me at almost every hundred I've done. I mean, she's just amazing. It's, I I feel so blessed and fortunate to have someone to share that many hours on the trail with. I mean, you know, we've done a couple that we we made the decision going into the run. We were going to stay together no matter what. And, and that's a whole different adventure because when (laughs) When one person's hurting, I mean, you see your spouse, even you're pacing them or you're running with them and, and, and they're at a low, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, you see people in all different levels of feeling pretty good or feeling really bad. And when you're feeling bad, you know, it's, you know, to try to tell your spouse without them getting mad at you, right. Hey, you need to get up and get going, you know, <laughs> like, okay, throw up, get, get that throw up out of there. You gotta just get that done. And then let's, let's get going. You know, it's, yeah, it's to share those experiences. I mean, those hours and miles on the trail that we've, that we have is amazing. And so, you know, having, having kids and, and ultra running and doing what you were doing, how does that play in to growing a family? How'd you guys do that? <laughs> Very little sleep. Very little sleep. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of my, I, I was always, for me to, to do any running was, I've done a lot of headlamp running, really just a lot of in the dark, get up in the dark and go run in the dark and then get back and then get ready for work and go to work. And yeah. So incredible. That, 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 that's the only way to make it work. I mean, we tend to, you know, think of, think of running is it's just part of our lives. It's just what we enjoy to do. It's how, when we go on vacation, we always run because we want to see, and we've found that running has been a, just a great way to go sightsee for us. When, when she and I have been on vacation, our boys, you know, living in Tahoe, both were involved in ski programs. So every weekend we were dedicated to getting them to the hill and then we would drop them off and we would go run and then we'd go ski. So yeah. it was a great workout, but we would always go, okay, let's get a run in and then let's go ski. And because yeah. we liked to do it, you know, it wasn't like it was ever a chore. It was like, let's, let's, let's go for a run and then, yeah. and then we'll go. That's, um, that's so beautiful. And I'm, I'm a big believer, you know, when time spent together is huge. When, I mean, think about all the times, I mean, my wife and I hike a lot together. She doesn't run a lot with me, but we hike a lot together. And some of those times are just priceless. I can only imagine the many, many hours you have on the, on the trail, just talking about life. And I know that things open up for me when I'm on the trail. There's just no doubt about it. Your mental capacity grows and you're able to, I think you're able to deal with a lot more stuff when you run as a couple being able to experience that is this got to be outstanding. 
Yeah, yeah. Like I say, I mean, I it's the coolest thing. Like even you know, going back to what about a, a month ago now at, at TRT. Yeah, I, I was having a wonderful first half for a while. I think felt great until it didn't, you know. <laughs> and then when things fell apart, and she met me at, at Diamond Peak and was going to run in into the finish with me, and just having her there was just so awesome because she's like, lay down, take a nap at Diamond Creek, Diamond Peak. So I did and slept a little and. She, you know, she, she passed me back together and that's, you know, when you can do that for each other in those moments is, is pretty darn cool. It's pretty special. It's really special. What would you say your best experience is on an ultra? If you were to name a best experience, what would it be? Best experience. Boy, there's, you know, there's, it's interesting because I think the ones where I have the roughest days shaped me. And, and I learned the most from one of the, you know, one of the ones I can really think about is I, I went up and I did Pine to Palm up in Southern Oregon and I had the worst first half of it. I was the closest I'd ever been to being timed out. I think I had like a minute when I finally got to 42 mile aid station. It took me, I think five, over five hours to do one 11 mile section because it was so hot. And I fell apart and it was just, I was so sick and I came stumbling in and I, I didn't think I was going to finish at all. And I was able to, to keep going. Once again, Caroline was there and, and the crew was there with me and, and they helped me out. And then I was able to, to put it together and get through the night. And I actually, I think, I think final count and I think I passed like 70 people in the last 20 miles because it came back together. It's so funny because my crew didn't make it to an aid station that they were supposed to. And excuse me. And they, and this was one of those lessons learned. I gave them my really good headlamp because I figured, oh, they're going to make it. They're never, my crew is never not going to make it to an aid station. And they didn't have, so I didn't have my headlamp. So I'm like, oh, geez. And, and I had an eight mile section to, to do without a headlamp. It was about a three quarters moon. And so what I did was I, I ended up, I had a little mini mag light pen light and it was, I figured, okay, this is just enough to get me going. So I ran almost the entire section under the moon and, and didn't just use the light every now and then I would shine it up to see if I could see a ribbon or not. And that experience doing that in the dark, that section, that eight miles, primarily in the dark was, was fantastic because when I got to the next aid station, they were there. And I got there and they were there and I knew I'd get to have a pacer with me at that point. And they, they felt so bad. I'll never forget. First, Caroline was so, she knew that the not making it to an aid station was like, when your crew doesn't come through for you, it's, it's not good. <laughs> and so she felt so bad and she was so funny. She goes, I brought you a cheese pizza. And I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. Well, maybe, and they ended up eating and it powered me through for the rest of the run. And like I say, that the last 20, 30 miles, I had probably the best finish that I've had in, in any other hundred wow. miler. Wow. So, what, what is the best experience you've had with your wife at a, at an ultra? Finishing during the golden hour at States oh. in 2017. Tell us about that. That was that was a tough year. I mean, most people can remember the fire and ice year of 2017. And, and, and the cool thing was we had both got in. I mean, the fact that we both got into Western States was, was 
first of all, that's like winning the lottery, right? Which it is. Right, right. Uh, and we stayed together the whole time. And we went through phases of one of us would feel pretty good. And then the other one would kind of start to fall apart. And it, it just kind of went back and forth like that, where we were just, it, it was just a tough year that, that year. And, and our, our crew and pacers were just so phenomenal. It was when my brother, my sister were there. Caroline's brother named showed up, was there. Our dear friend, Frankie Stone, who I think you know Frankie, mm-hmm. was there. was one of our, our pacers. And they nursed us together enough. And because it was tight, you know, coming in at the golden hour can be a little stressful. And, and this was, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I've never been here before the golden hour. This is, this is, this doesn't happen. But it was happening. <laughs> and, 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 just, and just mustering it up and really just putting it together and getting it done and it's, it's so funny because when I look back at my first Western States and, and I finished, I was fortunate enough to, to have a, a sub 24 year. I think there was like three people there, you know, at the finish line. And, and now the golden hour, there's thousands and thousands of people. And it's Caroline did Western States this year. And, and she finished in the golden hour and you would think you were, she won it. And, and, you know, and she, you know, and I mean, just the people, the fans, the, that it's it is just so awesome now to just come into that stadium and feel the the power of that of those people all around the track and it's it's what makes it you know what makes it a special event for yeah, sure definitely and no question yeah definitely now there's something about the community that you know that you and I are in no matter where you go no matter what you do it's it's very special and I think one of the things I I take away him the most is that there's not a whole lot of people that have been celebrated and you can be somebody who's a ordinary but extraordinary person and in these ultras you can be celebrated i just think that's the most wonderful thing about it and some people will never have that opportunity but they come and they put the hard work in it's amazing what happens so uh, your kids. So where are they? What are they doing now? I know you've driven one to school in San Diego when I was talking to you earlier. So yeah. how where are they at? So yeah. So he's one. He's down at San Diego State. He survived the hurricane. <laughs> right. I think he was out surfing. He told us he was out surfing a few days ago. We thought, are you, you're nuts. <laughs> Don't do anything dumb. And then our younger one is now at school in Santa Rosa. That was a big part of our immediate move down here was to get him established in school. And he's in a great school down here, Cardinal Newman in Santa Rosa and doing well. So yeah, they're, they're nice. doing. That's good. Doing, doing. That's, that's incredible. You know, so if there was, you know, three things that you could come up with that were, you know, and you've probably some, you've already mentioned them you can review them. It's fine. But is there three things you can think of that shaped your life to where you are now that you would go back and say, without those three things, I don't know really know where I'd be today. Is there three things you can actually think of that that would uh, that you would say that about? Yeah, and that's you know, it's it's kind of alluded to it going back to traveling across the country and really becoming a whitewater guide. And, and that whole scene, because that led me to, to a journey across the country to where I came back and it helped me get more focused in my life mm-hmm. at that period of time that I felt like, okay, I really need to, to start 
thinking about my future and where I want to go and what, who I want to be and what I want to do. And, and it led me to physical therapy, which led me to meeting my wife. Mm. And that, that's really just, you know, that was a huge thing when I think about it, because I never, I never would have suspected that that would have led to that right. moment. Right. Yeah. So you think th those three things well, like that, or is there anything else you could think of? Oh, geez. Boy, boy, when I think about every aspect of the things that, you know, once again, my, my parents taking us camping and getting to, to see pretty much everywhere up and down the West Coast of the United States. Because I still, my, my dad would say, you're nuts. He, he always thought running ultras, he, and he runs. He's 87 years old, and the guy still runs. Wow. But he, he probably walks faster now, but he, he's been running for, for quite a while. He would not, he would deny it, but, but he can, he does run pretty well. But, you know, it's funny because he would just always say, retire. Every time I ran a hundred miles, he'd go, okay, good. You can retire now. You don't have to do that again. And, and I always am kind of like, well, this is really your fault. <laughs> I, I feel like you really kind of inspired me by who you were he was the best hiker I knew. I mean, he was my dad. He would carry me on his shoulders when I was a really little kid and hike and, you know, and he was just such a great hiker, still a great walker, walks fast. And, and it's, you know, so, I, so I always can look back and go, well, dad, you're, you're really kind of responsible for this. So, so it's kind of a touche moment there. Right. Right. <laughs> so, you know, when you take a look back and, you know, I'm love talking about identity. I love studying identity. Um, and one of the reasons I, I love it so much is because we, from our past and how we grow up and who's in our, our circle as we grow up, has a huge effect on how we believe about ourselves and, and who we are. And I, I love saying, you know, if you, you, when you know who you are, you're a powerful person. And so what is your take on identity? I mean, what do you think about identity? Have you, have you thought about it before? Yeah, you know, I've always, it's kind of one of my taglines I'm always saying you know we're just the sum of our parts wow right that's mm -hmm. that's something it's kind of one of my mantras I guess I'm just the sum of my parts and I can look back at every aspect of my life and and say wow I guess I learned this or I'm able to do this because of this experience and, and what I did back when and and you know that's you know when I think about my identity you know I've, I've learned to be you know, my teach my parents being teachers you know and I've always felt my, like when I look at myself as being a leader, a manager and a director for a department is being servant, you know, don't ask anyone to do anything you wouldn't do yourself. And, and, and just serving people is something that I've always enjoyed. I love working with patients. I love developing young therapists. You know, those were the things I really enjoyed when building a team and, and just serving that team so that they could be successful. Right. And that's, that's kind of when I think about my identity. And I mean, that, that example was really brought on by my parents. And I mean, they still teach adults who don't know how to read to read. They're still involved wow. in project read and, and things like that. So that example really to always be a teacher, you know, I thought about going into teaching, you know, but it's something I enjoy doing. I still, I enjoy giving lectures and, and giving talks. And that's something I've done over the course of my career. And, and, and I enjoy that. I enjoy sharing Obviously, I love talking about running. Right. So, you know, talk, you know, talking, telling stories about running because, you know, if we, we could talk for probably five, six, ten more hours, Ken. I mean, you know, to hear 
it's just it brings you know the cliche thing you know you can live a lifetime in 100 miles right i'm sure you've heard that oh, one, yeah. right yeah and and it's amazing what problems you can solve with yourself and just think about yeah. things while you're out there and, and the clarity it can give you and and when you finish and that and that's always the thing people would ask what do you like about running 100 miles and i'd say well finishing is 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 why because you it gives you a different perspective like the i mean i'm usually the person i would finish on a sunday and be at work on monday i just you know you but but the lesson you learn how to tackle problems and and that things are not you can overcome that's you can right. overcome a lot more than you think you're capable of and that's what i know running ultra running has done for me is that you know no matter how tough things get I just kind of put myself in ultra mode, so to speak. Right. And it's like, okay, work through this problem. Stay, one of my other mantras, stay in the moment in the mile. That's my stay in the moment right now. Get through this, move to the next step, and you're going to get through this. Yeah. And, and It's amazing. I, I consider ultra running much like traveling. And it doesn't surprise me one bit that you caught on to ultra running because you traveled so much before you ran. And you have to think on your feet when you travel. There's things change, and you know, especially when you travel outside the country. And so, it's just it's a really beautiful way you said that. And stay in the moment and the mile. Stay in the moment in the mile. Wow, I'll, I'm going to borrow that one. <laughs> Use it. I want. love it. So when you take a look at, and I love asking this question. I'm a very spiritual person, and so I I think identity comes from you know. Uh, a spiritual side. What, what is your What is your thought on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think of myself as a, I mean, I'm a I'm a born and raised confirmed Catholic. Both my <laughs> wife and I. Awesome. Uh, I don't consider myself the most religious person. Right. I, I'm a spiritual person. Yeah. I think that's definitely guided me. I believe in God. I, I believe there's definitely something greater than what's here in our physical world out there, and. And I believe in prayer and meditation. And it's funny because I think now having grown up and my parents' faith was always something very important to them. And we grew up going to church every Saturday or Sunday, right? Uh, midnight mass at Christmas and Easter's. And, you know, we, we, we always went to mass and, and, you know, when you're a kid growing up, you, you know, you look at things differently. And I think where I've gotten older now and just, with my son going to a private Catholic high school and, and we believe that that foundation and that to me is what religion should be. It's a foundation of who you are and how you treat other people. And I'm a very big golden rule person. And, and I always, you know, always feel I should give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to treat someone the same way I would want to be treated That's right. and, or treat them better than I would even right. want to be treated is really, really my foundation with the golden rule. And so that, that just to me to, to get that, set at a young age, regardless of where you at when your brain is still developing, right, right, you know, growing up, but but when you come back, because everything, you know, is full circle, right? And when you come back, and you go, wow, I, I have so much more an appreciation. And when I do go to mass now, and I'll sit and I'll listen, I, I'm so much more engaged. And and I appreciate the message, regardless of what that message is. Sure. Because obviously you can pull off experiences in life now and go, wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I like that. And you know, you don't have to agree with everything and, right. and 
but you, you take it and once again, some of our parts, right? Yeah. And and what you do with it is is yours to do with. But I definitely always appreciate hearing a positive message that you can you can somehow use right in any way of your life. That that's really that's really good. I know, you know, when you talk about your identity and and one of the most incredible things to see is to see it come out through your kids and see I mean, when you start seeing them reacting and understanding and figuring out who they are, it's a beautiful thing. I can only imagine your parents going, wow, you know, so glad they made the decisions they made to have that foundation and watching you and your kids. And I'm a big believer that there's not a lot of teachers anymore. We're losing the teachers. And Mm -hmm. when we, when you see that, you can see how great it is on that side of it. Well, I have one last question I'd like to ask you, and I know that we could go so much farther, so much longer for talk about so much more, many things, and it's just been a joy. If you were to come across somebody who's having a hard time, and I'm sure you do, being around as many people as you are in, in your profession, what's something that you would tell them, tell somebody who's having a hard time, and maybe they don't know who they are, and they're trying to figure it out, but uh, what would you tell them? I think, you know, the first thing I always try to do is, is, and this goes back to management and and what have you, but to seek to understand, right. You know, it's seek to understand what that person's going through and get the why, you know, why are you feeling this way? And and with that understanding, I think that, you know, for me to be able to, to help guide someone and, you know, sometimes you can share, you know, share a personal story like, yeah, you know, I went through that myself. And I think that's, when you can relate to people and, and they know that you're being truthful with them and when you can really relate to their story because of a past experience of your own, then you can really help someone, I feel like. But just really talking to someone and listening to them and hearing their story and understanding their why and then whatever I can contribute because I never felt like, you know, I always feel... I'm okay being not being the smartest guy in the room. And I usually always felt like with my staff, I would tell them, I'm, I'm, you are all way smarter than me. That's why I hired you to make my life easier. So I'm, I'm okay not being the smartest guy or the best at, at anything for sure. But it's, it's just taking the experience and trying to, trying to give someone a piece of your experience that, that can help them. Right. And that's how, how I've always attacked it with, with friends or with, with staff, you know, that's great. That's so good. I just got to say, I'm so grateful for, for you and Caroline can't tell you when I was, there's been a, a, there was the year I got sick and I was up at the Kokanee and it was a race director and, and seeing you guys then and seeing you guys help out and run it. And it was just, uh, those, those are moments I never forget. And uh, just, there goes our running community again, just always showing up and serving. And I really truly believe it's the essence of who we are. And you said it, and that is serving. So I'm I am very blessed and very honored to have you on on Who Do You Think You Are podcast. And what I'd like to do is obviously open that invitation up. We're gonna have a where are they now? I know we're gonna do that. And I can't I know there's probably a new chapter in your life that's emerging now from moving down to Santa Rosa, right? So, yep. so uh, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. 
But I just thank you so much for being on with us today. Well, well, thank you, Ken. And I want to kind of go back to that because I know you had mentioned us running into each other up on the on the rim trail. But I my always my memory of you is when we met when we were volunteering helping you out at the Kokanee and and marking the course. And I just remember because then you and I would run into each other off and on over the years, over the last probably 10 years, maybe yeah. once, maybe once a year we'd maybe run into each other. Yep. And and I just always there was something about you that resonated with me because you just were so real and you were so passionate. And I just want you to know that that's I always appreciate, even though I don't we don't really know each other, right. we know each other now, which is great. Right. But, but that I always appreciated just the person you were then, and I always appreciated getting to see you. And true story, all I could think of this year at TRT when I was coming into Tunnel Creek was Ken's gonna be there and he's gonna he's gonna be there for me. <laughs> and the first person who came up to me, Alan, you're here. I'm like, there it is. <laughs> That's why Ken's my guy. And and I just named that. And 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 I think. I think, you know, obviously running 100 miles, but I remember just saying, man, I love you, man, when I left the one aid station. And and I meant that. And I really mean that. You're just a wonderful human being. I love listening to your podcast and sitting here and talking to you has just been really a great experience for me. And I just want to thank you for that. Well, brother, I love you, too. And I am so excited uh, uh, that we did this today. And I can't wait to check in with you. And now we have a reason to come down to Santa Rosa and say hi. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So right on. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you, Alan, for sharing your story with us today. I am blessed to know you and can't wait to spend more time in the future sharing stories of our adventures. A couple of the takeaways that I got from Alan's story was his ability to be in the moment. His mantra of stay in the moment in the mile not only has served him in ultra running, but in life. I also love that he and Caroline both run for the love of running, and it's something they love to do together. You can tell when you meet them that they have a great marriage. There are so many lessons that weave through Alan's story. I was certainly encouraged and inspired to hear many of them today. You have been listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with Ken Castrico. If you want more of this or want to learn more about my community, go to www.endurancelead.com. That's www.endurancelead.com. Make sure you hit that follow button so you won't miss another episode. And thank you for listening. If you found this podcast inspiring, please leave a comment and share it with a friend.